When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Lit Up. Today's guest is Sheila Hetty. You probably know who she is from her provocative novel, How Should a Person Be? Well, if you don't already, you'll know her after this conversation. She flew in from Toronto and met me in New York to talk about her new novel, Motherhood. It's a really fascinating novel and brings up a lot of questions. I have to admit that I was resistant to read it, even though I have loved Sheila's work for so long, because that question of motherhood feels kind of a little close to home, like whether to have kids or not. And it's even trickier when you don't have anyone to have those kids with. So you'll probably hear maybe some of the strain in my voice when we're chatting, but I hope you enjoy this episode. Wow. So, Sheila Hetty, thank you for being here. Sure. Um, as I just said, I've loved your work for so long and you've interviewed so many incredible writers yourself in kind of your other capacity. So, I have the nerves happening, <laughs> but we shall push through. Good. Um, could you read uh, the one of the first sections from your new novel, Motherhood, and that'll get us into it? Sure. This comes, yeah, this is basically the beginning of the book. I often beheld the world at a great distance, or I didn't behold it at all. At every moment, birds passed by overhead that I did not see, clouds and bees, the rustling of breezes, the sun on my flesh. I lived only in the grayish, insensate world of my mind, where I tried to reason everything out and came to no conclusions. I wished to have the time to put together a world view, but there was never enough time. And also, those who had it seemed to have had it from a very young age. They didn't begin it at 40. I mean, I know that in How Should a Person Be, it felt like another um, endeavor of trying to find out who is this person and what is their world view. Yeah. Did you feel that you still hadn't found that worldview, even having gone through that process and you had to then go, I need to interrogate this again? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and maybe it's a lifelong thing. Maybe the books, you know, if the books are interrogations, then the only thing you can come up with, if you're being honest, is something very provisional. Um, because life changes and you change and your circumstances change. And yeah, I don't, I don't think I have a worldview. Um, 
still. And maybe that's okay for writing fiction because I think, you know, if you're a pundit or something, if you're somebody who goes out and say, says what is, then you need a worldview and you especially need a worldview to withstand the criticism you get from, from saying what your worldview is. But the fiction writer maybe is the opposite of somebody with a worldview. It's somebody with a lot of um, propositions. Mm. Well, one aspect of the book that we should explain, um, you ask these questions of yourself or really of these coins. Mm -hmm. And can you explain what these coins are and how you use them? Yeah, um, so the... I was. I, I am very interested in the I Ching, and with the I Ching, what you do is you throw three coins um, six times, and with that you get a hexagram, one of sixty-four hexagrams, and you read that, and that's your answer. And at a certain point of doing the I Ching, I just kind of became impatient or wanted something more direct than this mysterious hexagram that you know didn't really answer a question in a direct way. It just sort of gave you a new context with which to think of your problem. So I I started writing in such a way that I would like ask a question like should I have a baby, you know, and throw the three coins and you know if it was I think two or three heads it w- I would take that as a yes and if it was two or three tails I would take that as a no. So I would throw the coins, write down either yes or no, whatever it said, and then ask another question and then throw the coins again. So it's a dialogue, but it's a, di- and a dialogue with myself, but also a dialogue with randomness and chance. Um, and the coins were just became this voice of some kind of like God-like voice that at the same time, I knew it was not any voice. It was just randomness or chance, but it developed its own character in some way, some kind of a authority, which is so strange. But yeah, I guess I became this other character, not even another character in the book, but another voice. And the reason I started writing that way was because I was, after How Should a Person Be, which involved so much talking with friends and dialogue and being out in the world, I was again alone in my room. But I really like dialogue as a form. I really like conversation. You know, you mentioned my interviews. I love learning through conversation and thinking through conversation. And this was a way of still having a conversation, but alone and with some force that's not quite myself. Because I, as I was reading it, I had to remind myself that you were using the coins because I thought it's her alter ego, it's her other self. Then I thought, no, it's God, it's (laughs) the universe. And I love that through the process I had forgotten what the rules were that you had told me about. And I thought, then I had to question myself, who do I want to be? Yeah, right. And I felt that I don't know how the the coins had such great answers. I mean, they didn't, you know, (laughs) just yes or no. I think it's really that, um, yeah, I think maybe yes and no, maybe those are great answers, you know, because it's very hard to answer to yourself yes or no. There's always this equivocation. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is true that, Either yes or no, they're both great answers, you know. There's also, so in the book, your boyfriend character is called Miles. Mm-hmm. have many feelings about Miles, which I'm sure everyone <laughs> will have. But something that struck me, a kind of interaction you had have with him or, you know, your fictional Sheila has with him is about um, this, something you said, like sitting in the room. He says, as soon as writers start to have interesting lives, their work suffers. And I didn't, I don't agree with him, but maybe (laughs) he's right. But how did you feel 
switching from how should a person be where you were interacting to then sitting in the room? Um, yeah, it's like it wasn't an interesting life in any external way the last few years um, because I was writing in the ordinary way of sitting alone in your room and writing. But I feel that I did manage to, by stopping everything, sort of by stopping my life, um, go to new, like deeper places than if I had continued. I don't know, I just couldn't do the same thing again. I can never do the same thing with a new book that I did with the last book. But it w did feel uncomfortable at first to, um, yeah, to just stop, to stop traveling, to stop really being with people, to to be alone. And and now I'm at a point where I actually want to continue that. I don't feel a craving to go back out in the world. So maybe I developed some capacity again to, um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know, just to go inside myself. I mean, that's. That's the that's the place that I used to write from, and then for a number of years I didn't, and now I'm back there. And did that heighten your dependency on the relationship? Because you have, um, you know, in the book it's about you and Miles and are you having a child, um, but also what it means to be dependent on someone you love so much. And aren't we as women, there is a, an amazing line in, in the book, which I related to so much of thinking I should never rely on a man. I right. should never be dependent on a man because then, the, you know, that's the beginning of the end. That's the beginning of losing the self. Yeah. And then, I mean, is that how you felt? Um, I think for me, I'm somebody who likes to imagine living many different lives and it's very hard for me to accept that the life I'm living is actually my life and you know if you're always imagining other lives in some way you kind of evade the suffering of the life you've chosen which every life has and so I think writing this book was a way of not evading the suffering of whatever I had chosen mm -hmm. and going into fantasy like escaping into fantasy especially for a fiction writer is such an easy way of dealing with one's daily problems you know you just say well fuck this like I'm just gonna write or I'm just gonna think about other things and I'm not gonna deal with it and I'm not saying that I didn't do that I think I did that a lot more so in some ways it was good for writing because I that was my only escape you know my escape wasn't to like San Francisco or two other friends it was just into writing so you talk about ambivalence in the book as well did the subject of motherhood start as an ambivalent feeling? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the book is sort of about trying to... And, well, one thing the book is about is about trying to figure out whether or not to have a child. And I think some people know and some people really don't know. And I'm one of those people that has leaned towards not wanting a child, but also thinking maybe I should or maybe that would be wonderful. or yeah. So that, that kind of ambivalence, like working through that ambivalence in the book... Um, I think part of writing this book was a way of saying to myself, like, whatever you do, it doesn't really matter whether you have a child or not, but just think about it. Like, don't just act out, you know, right. either by having one, you know, or just not having one and not thinking about it, like actually sit in this place and think it through and, and deal with 
all the very many questions and feelings and thoughts that either the, you know, your projection into either life brings up. What does it mean to have a child? What does it mean to not have a child? Um, yeah, there's no answer to what a person should do in that situation. But I think for me, the answer was, well, just think about it. Put it down on the page. I also wondered how a book like this would be, how the response would have been a hundred years ago. Um, I wondered, like it's amazing that we're in this time where this conversation is so valued and important. Mm -hmm. And why do you think it's still so important for women to have motherhood be part of their identity? Because it has been. I mean, we don't have very many examples of women who who have said no to motherhood and then gone on to live lives that we understand as being fulfilling and joyful and interesting. I mean, there are some, but they seem to have such big lives. I mean, they're great artists or great adventurers or have, you know, dozens of lovers. I mean, but what about for the ordinary woman that just doesn't have that magnificence? You know, what does that life look look like? And I, I mean, we live in a, I think we do live in a world where the message we get is that you're, you're missing out on something tremendous and there's no place that says it's okay to yeah maybe it is tremendous and maybe it's okay to miss out on it you know it's always this this idea that you're going to regret it if you don't do it and there's never a conversation about well what about the women that do it and regret it you know what about the women that have children and they think I was just following a life script that doesn't really suit me and I love my child but I don't love being a mother and I wish I hadn't done this I mean that's a very taboo thing to say people are saying it more now but I think it's still a pretty taboo thing to say um, so there's just not it doesn't look like a possible path not having a child for it's a very risky path it still feels like and it also feels that yeah those are the, the mothers have such sorrow for you Right. On your behalf. Right. And it's just, yeah, a strange place to be, like when everyone is assuming, like, there's a dinner party in the book. Yeah, which they don't say in front of her. I mean, she's the only one in their circle who doesn't have a child. I mean, they all have partners, and so does she, but she doesn't have a child. And when she's not with them, they all say, oh, poor her, you know? And there's always this, you know, they, I think the line is like, they gossip about her delusions and her lack you know, her delusion, because she says she doesn't want a child, but they think, well, that's not really true. Like, how can she not want a child? Um, and I think it's hard when all your friends are doing it. And I think it's hard not to have signposts in a life. Like, okay, I've mm. achieved this. Now I've achieved this. Now comes this next thing. When you get rid of all those, you have to sort of like existentially every day, you have to, you're faced with, well, what, what is valuable to me? Not, and maybe no one else will accept that as valuable and maybe no one else can even see what I, what's valuable to me. I mean, a child, if you have a child, it looks like a very valuable thing in your life. If you don't have a child, it looks like the lack of a valuable thing and people don't see what you have in place of that. I mean, for me, I write books. So in some ways I'm let off the hook. Well, you have your books, you know, like you're doing something valuable with your life, but what if you don't have something so overt, you know, how do you, what do you, sh what do you have for other people to look at and say, 
you know, that person is living a life of value for herself. Yeah, what have they achieved? I do think the female artist gets a let pass. off the hook. Yeah. yeah, because people go, oh, that is where all their creative output goes into into these other beings. Yeah, and people who aren't writers like think, well, your books are your babies. I mean, I don't like that construction because it's not true at all. I mean, my books are my books. They're not babies in any way. Um, but there is still this permission well, you're still putting something into the world. You're still absorbed in something that culture considers fairly valuable. You know, art is considered fairly valuable. Um, but yeah, what about for the woman who like goes to an office and doesn't have something that other people can see and doesn't want a child? Like, what's her solution? You have to have a lot of self-confidence, I think, and a lot of faith that... No, you're not going to regret it. If you don't want a child, you don't want a child. We don't all want the same things. Not every woman is the same as every other woman, you know? And you're not just a woman. You're so many other things. Mm. And even if you are a woman, like, why why is womanhood and maternity so, so, so linked? Like, there's a way of being a woman and not being a mother. But I think that there's a feeling of, like, well, you're not quite a woman, you know? You're sort of, like, missing it. You're missing out on the central experience of womanhood. Has the experience of writing this book changed your relationship with your mother? Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I don't know what it would be if I hadn't written the book. Mm. I mean, that's always the thing. Yeah. It's like maybe it would have changed anyways just by reaching the age of 40. Maybe you have a different relationship to your mother than you do when you're 30 because, you know, because you just get older and you see you see more and she sees you more as an adult than as a child. I heard a great interview with you when you were talking about how should a person be that uh, the ugly painting competition, which was so wonderful. And you'd said that, you know, there were certain situations that you pushed into your life so you could write about them. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if in this book there were certain situations. I'm just wondering if the going to the psychic or the, mm. the woman on the street was something that you know, you do thinking, I'll see what happens here because I want to write into this. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in some way the whole book is that because I, I had a conversation with a poet friend of mine named Sarah Manguso and she and I um, sort of had a pact that we were going to have children. This was like when we were in our early 30s, we, we both said, okay, we're both going to have children. And then, you know, she had a child and I thought, I don't know if I can... You know, I don't know if this pact was a good idea. You can't really have a child because you have a pact with a friend. <laughs> like, it's just, it's absurd, you know? And and I remember having a conversation with her and she said to me, she was like, I was sort of agonizing about what to do. And she was like, oh, it's so much easier to have a child than to wonder whether to have a child. And she said, I'm so glad I'm not in that phase of life where I'm wondering. And I And in that moment, that was this moment where I thought, well, I'm going to prolong this phase of life. Like if it really is such a horrible, nauseating thing that not only I go through, but other women go through, like maybe my responsibility is not to have a child as I promised Sarah I would, but to, to stay in this hard place. And so I feel like the whole, I, I feel like I probably wouldn't have stayed in this hard place if it wasn't for the sake of a book, for the sake of, well, write down all those thoughts that I hadn't seen written down, you know? I haven't, I hadn't read any books that were 
about this moment of trying to decide. So it seemed worthwhile. Like it seemed like its own kind of adventure. Well, what happens if you just stay here? Yeah. What happens if you say the the things that people can't speak about? This book feels like that taboo place for sure. I don't know. I mean, I guess with, I just want to be excited when I'm working. So maybe those are the more exciting places. I just want to feel like I can't, like I've got something to solve and the only way to solve it is to, to keep writing or I've got, um, yeah, I don't know. It's funny, like which projects captivate you and which ones bore you. And it's so clear. Um, cause I worked on this book more or less on and off for seven years. So for something to interest you for seven years, that there has to be something, um, kind of mysterious about why it's so interesting mm. to you. And I'm not even sure if it was the idea that it was taboo as much much as I thought this book was going to answer something for me. Like it was going to answer for me whether I want to have a child or not. And that was an answer I really wanted. And it it didn't quite do that. Um, But in some ways it's better that it didn't do that. My friend Margo was always like, your books are smarter than you, you know? And I mean, it's true. Like if you spend seven years on something that's going to be smarter than you are in any like spontaneous moment. So it's kind of dumb in some ways to think, well, this book is going to answer this very simple question for myself. And it's, I think, smarter that the book doesn't answer it quite. I mean, there's like a, there's a moment there, the book ends, you know, obviously the character has a child or doesn't have a child at the end, but that that's not an answer. That's just a moment. The moment the book ends, I think. Well, it's like in life, right? We're always so ahead of ourselves thinking that when B happens, everything will have come to its natural conclusion. Yeah. And once you're there, everything's shifted again. Yeah, exactly. When did you decide to bring in your grandma and great-grandma and mother's story in? Um, Right, actually, at the very beginning, I thought I want to write about my mother and her mother because the model that I have for a woman and a mother comes from my mother. So there was no way of writing about motherhood without writing about the model of my mother. I mean, my mother's a doctor and is not somebody who ever seemed to me like the archetype of the mother that you know the that you get from the culture of like a nurturing woman who wants to spend a lot of time with her children she's still a very loving person and we have a very nice relationship but that was not her orientation mm. her orientation was always her work and so even when i was a child i had this feeling like my mother's different from the other mothers and it there was like a bit of sadness to that, but also a bit of pride um, and kind of fascination and confusion also about the idea of a mother. Well, is my mother a mother if she's not this like, you know, you stay, spend a lot of time with a children kind of woman? If she doesn't seem to get a lot of joy out of it, if she'd rather be alone looking at her slides and studying, like, is she also a mother? Because the word mother seemed so categorical to me and it seemed so, its boundaries seemed so clear. So I feel like in some ways writing this book, I wanted to broaden the idea of mother to include mothers like my mother for whom motherhood was not the central experience of life, was not the great joy of her life, for whom work was the great joy of her life, you know, and her own independence. I mean, she was just so independent and 
I always thought of my family and sometimes as like my father, my brother and me. And then my mother was this kind of satellite who was really into her own thing, which is sort of like I am, you know, I mean, that's when you're a writer, you kind of feel like a bit of a satellite. You kind of, you're alone in some way. Um, and not really part of a system. You're sort of outside whatever system you're part of. When was there a point where you realized that you weren't the reason for her being a satellite? Because it's as a child and it comes through so beautifully that, of course, you think, you know, we, as kids we always think we're the reason for our parents' actions until we grow up and realize that we're not, you know, the center of their universe in that way. And, oh, they must have been going through these other things and had thoughts and feelings that weren't about us. But when did that shift for you? And was it a relief? Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I've even, even talking to you now, I'm like, is that, I don't think it ever will be totally clear to me that I'm not the reason. I mean, I think there's always this like very, infantile part of us that will forever think that the reason our parents are the way they are is because of us somehow. So even if as an adult, I can intellectually say, well, no, it had nothing to do with me the way she was. She was that way before I even came along. There's still always this childlike part of you that thinks you're the reason. So I don't even think today I, <laughs> I fully can accept that. Well, you know, you could solve... Um, I'm just trying to think of... Um, solve her tears and yeah, solve her sadness. Yes. Yeah, like part of the book was, because my mother... Yeah, part of the book was this idea of of solving her sadness and writing writing a book that would make it so that she never cried again. And I mean, that's, that's a very childlike kind of desire, you know? And it, but it's... I wanted to put it in there because it seems so honest to me too. Like we, no one wants their parents to be sad and you as a child feel like you're the, you can somehow do that. You can, yeah, you're just, the, you're just like you say, you're the center and you can shift things. You know, like when, pe when people get divorced, they always tell the child it's not your fault because they know the child is going to think it's their fault. That's true. <laughs> and the child will think it's their fault no matter what. Yeah, no and why is that? Yeah. I don't know. Because you just think the universe forms around you. That's the child's outlook. And that is forever, in some ways, a tiny little part of us in relation to our parents. I think, too, reading the book, I felt the potential sadness for myself if I didn't have a child that my parents wouldn't get the joy of the grandchild. And that, I feel like that's another layer that you have to kind of work through when you think of not having children. Yeah, but they're not owed that, I don't think. And I don't think every, I think that's another cliche in some way. Yeah. Also the joy of the grandchild. Like I think a lot of grandparents or a lot of um, people who have had children aren't looking forward in that way to grandchildren, aren't interested in, I don't know, it seems a little bit like maybe that's not what your parents would experience. Maybe they don't need that. Well, I do have friends who, you know, think they're going to have all this childcare help. Right, exactly. And then they're like, mom's off at golf, not interested. Yeah, you know, in yeah. And I think a lot of women feel like, I did that already. I don't want to do that again. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. 
the conversation you're starting to have about this, have you felt the like a current of anger towards it or is it all kind of compassion or just interest? I mean, so far, the mo- many of the people that have read it are writers and people, you know, people I've sent the book to are r- mostly writers and fr- friends of mine. So, you know, I've had women say that they felt um, exposed by it and it was uncomfortable, but they're the kind of people that can see that and say that and not react out, you know, react against it and so, or act out about it. But I, I think there are, gonna, I'm sure there's going to be people that take issue with different parts of it. Yeah. I think reading your work, you come across as a very private person, um, maybe despite the work feeling so honest. How do you live in those two places when you have to go and talk about the book? Well, I have no desire to talk about the book. Mm. You know, I mean, if I had my... (laughs) Yeah, you just want to let it... Yeah, I mean, that would be my ideal. Like I, you know, I interviewed Elena Fronte Mm -hmm. um, about a year ago and... And I mean, I would love to like do an Elena Ferrante with this book and just disappear and just let the book make its own way in the world without me. But I'm, but that's not, that's ultimately I chose to, to do this kind of thing because, um, I don't know, because it's easier probably to to make your publisher happy and do some of it. And I'm also interested in having these conversations, you know. Um, but I don't feel the need to, I don't feel like there's anything I need, need to say. Like with How Should a Person Be, there was so much I wanted to say about the book and around the book. And there was so much I felt like I had to talk about that wasn't in the book. Whereas with this book, everything's in the book. There's nothing I can add mm. to it. I can only say, take away from it, I feel, by saying stupid things that I haven't thought through, you know, because the book is really well thought through and there's not a sentence in there that I don't that I don't stand behind. Whereas I feel like it would be so easy for me in interviews to say something that I'm going to not be able to stand behind. And I, I wish I didn't have to do that, but I made the choice to do that. And when you interview other writers knowing that about yourself, how do you broach them? Uh, and, and have you found that some people look very different in their approach? Um, yeah, do they love love the process versus hate um, it? I don't know. I mean, I haven't done interviews actually in a couple of years, mm. apart from the Ferrante one I just mentioned. I haven't been doing interviews lately. Like, Again, that kind of feels like a different phase of my life mm-hmm. when I was so out in the world and now I'm so not out in the world. But um, I, I don't know. I, I actually don't think anybody has a strategy. People respond to you as a person, you know? Yeah. Um, and if you ask good questions and you seem sincere, then people will open up to you. And, you know, I've done interviews so far just I've only done a few so far but where I'm much 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 more guarded like I'm not I don't feel like I'm really being guarded right now because of the quality of your questions and I just trust you but sometimes you have a somebody who's interviewing you and you think I just don't trust this person and I'm not going to give them anything it just depends on the person but it's not like a strategy you take around from interview to interview you just adapt yeah so the last question is you said 
this will be my stated purpose, my design or agenda in writing this, to understand what it means, the soul of time, or to explain it to myself. Having written the book, do you have an idea of what the soul of time is now? No, I mean, it's still kind of like a, I've had moments where I really understood it, where I finally got it. It's like, you know, you know those like crazy puzzles where you would look at a page and then some people, and it looked like some crazy design. And then some people would be like, I can see a fire truck. And you're like, I don't see a fire truck. I just see this design. And I could never make those pop up for me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the phrase, the soul of time is one of those where once in a while it pops up and I suddenly get it and I can see it and I can understand. And then it goes back in the next, like my eyes blur and it goes back to being this sort of mysterious phrase. Um, what does it feel like? To get it? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like a very comforting feeling and a feeling of sort of everything's in its place and kind of a feeling of love and being, yeah, just being in the universe in a, in a more essential way rather than you're this random creature that was born onto this planet and you have no idea, you know, about anything and you're doing your best. It's like a, it's the opposite of that feeling. You know, the feeling that you're, that there's a place for you, there's a place for everybody um, and everything's okay. I mean, I guess the idea that the soul of time, well, I don't even know where that phrase came from, but... Yeah, there, maybe it's like a word like mother or something. Like for some people, it can the word mother is such a comforting f f word. And I think in the moments where I get it, the word soul of time probably feels to me like that word mother feels to other people, just home. Yeah, like love, unconditional love, safety. Yeah. Do you have a belief system that you go by every day? Mm. Nothing, nothing beyond the basic, you know, try to be good mm. to other people and try not to waste the day. I mean, no, I wish I had, uh, you know, as I said in the introduction, <laughs> I wish I had a belief system. But, I mean, this book is just done. I'm not really working on a new one. So I feel very out of sorts. And I feel very purposeless and kind of useless and sort of soggy. Like if I'm not working on something, I just feel like I have no form. So mm. I really hope to get back to a project soon. But it's not really, I don't really have a belief system. I just have a way of being in the world, which involves working, which makes me feel good. Mm. And if I'm not doing that, then I just, nothing makes me feel good. Oh, keep working. <laughs> There'll be so many more beautiful works I in hope the future. So. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you, Sheila. Yeah, thank you so much. We went many places. Yeah, what a I nice appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I don't know if I'm any surer about motherhood or not after our conversation, but I loved it nonetheless. I'd love to hear what you think. It's a triggering topic for some people, so I'd love to have a discussion about it if you guys want to. Let me know and get in touch at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram, and we can start the conversation. Also, let me know if there's an author you'd love to have on the podcast, and I'll do my best to get them on. Mm -hmm.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.